Welcome to the first episode of Saga Senna. My name is Saga, and I am the person behind Wild Moon Lilith. Since this is the very first episode, I thought I'd take a moment to introduce myself briefly, though, of course, you can also find more about me on my website, wildmoonlilith.com, and my social media. I go by Wild Moon Lilith in most, if not all, platforms. Anyway, I live in the beautiful wilderness of northern Sweden, and I am, in Swedish words, a vulva, which is a practitioner of seid, or Old Norse magic and divination. You can also call me a witch. Either works fine by me. I'm a pagan, specifically a heathen, and a heathen is a believer of the Old Norse ways, and I'm specifically oath-sworn and very devoted to Loki. I also practice some non-Norse stuff as well. I, myself, am half Swedish, going all the way back, and half Imasien, otherwise known as Berber, an indigenous group native to Northern Africa. But, you know, either way, we're all the same in spirit. I'm 35 years old at the time of the recording, and you can call me she, her, but I am, in fact, gender fluid and non-binary. I live with my husband and our two cat companions, and when I'm not focused on my spirituality or my business, you can either find me out in nature, painting, crafting, listening to music, that's a big one, playing a game or reading. And as a little side note, if you're not familiar with my business, I provide services such as divination, spells, and Reiki healing. I'm a Reiki master, in fact. And I also sell some metaphysical and decorational items. So anyway, about Sagasena. Sagasena is my podcast of sorts, where I'll be talking about different topics relating to witchcraft, paganism, philosophy, spirituality, and the occult overall. The name is chosen to playfully reflect that I will be unapologetically me in these episodes and speak from personal opinions and experiences. Saga, of course, being my name, and Senna is an old Norse form of poetry that was very, very confrontational in nature, so I thought it'd be a fun little name to reflect that these episodes will be me sharing my personal thoughts on things. It can be seen as educational, sure. I mean, I am a thesis short of my master's in religious science, as we call it here in Sweden, and I do have multiple degrees in various topics, as I have spent a good portion of my life in the academic world. But this is going to be a personal podcast. As such, you know, things will be presented from my personal bias or opinion, so you can take it with a grain of salt when it comes to the actual theoretical stuff, if you so desire. Of course, the name is also chosen as a loving little nod to Loki for anyone familiar with what I might be referencing there. In this first episode, as I'm sure the title gave away, I'm going to talk about morality within witchcraft. We're going straight for a heavy topic. So strap on in, grab something nice to drink or snack on if you can, and let's go. And you might hear some cats in the background, but you know, we're just going with it. So before I start talking more specifically about morality in witchcraft, I think it's very important to establish what I mean when I say morality. Now, I've worked as a philosophy teacher, and of course also studied at at university, 
And one of the really important things that we get taught and that I've discovered myself as well is of course that it's very important to establish how you use certain words. So when it comes to morality, there are two words that I really need to bring up. We might be familiar with these two words and they are morality or morals and ethics. We often see that these words are used in the same way, at least in like everyday situations, but technically they aren't the same word. A good rule of thumb is to consider ethics to be more of an external rule set, so something that's established by a bigger majority or, you know, a certain structure. For example, a workplace might have ethics on how to behave at the workplace. Now, morals, on the other hand, or morality, is your individual feelings of what is right and wrong. Now, you can be in a situation where your morals or morality goes against that of an ethical stance that's shared by a bigger majority. For example, society and the majority together with the government have established a certain form of ethics. You as an individual might not agree with the ethics that's established. You might adhere to it because that ethics usually is what bleeds into the rule sets and the laws that you have in society. But you might not feel on a personal level that you agree with everything that's established by the external sources. Now, there's a big reason I use right or wrong here and not good or bad. I personally have a very strong stance against the idea of good or bad or even good and evil. Because to me, good and evil or good and bad are ideas that don't really suit my worldview. I personally find that the idea of good and evil reflects a very modern way of thinking. Maybe one we can trace back to, you know, the changes we had in the West in connection to the Greek or Roman society as it started, you know, spreading across Europe. It can be connected to the Abrahamic rule sets or ethical stances that we see today. There are some older sources such as Zoroastrians that use the idea of good and evil. Either way, there's a lot of value and a lot of emotions and implied things connected to the words good and bad, or good and evil. So, as a rule of thumb, I try not to use those words. Instead, I'm talking about right and wrong. Especially because we're going to talk about morality, so our individual idea of what we consider to be right or wrong, which might even go against some ethical values of the society we live in or the contexts which we operate within. So if I was to sit here and talk about good and evil or good and bad and what I think is good and bad, I'm kind of indirectly condemning a lot of people that might personally feel more inclined to think that what I consider to be quote-unquote bad or worse, quote-unquote evil, they might think that's their good, to use those words. And when we start talking about things like good and bad, it becomes very emotional, right? It becomes something heavier. It, if we say something is bad or even worse, someone is bad or someone is evil, that's a very heavy thing. However, 
we tend to be a bit more aware that when it comes to right or wrong, yes, there's still a lot of emotions there, especially in certain topics, and rightfully so, in my opinion. Speaking as someone that's also an environmentalist and an activist, of course, there are very heated emotions and oftentimes, in my opinion, warranted emotions about what right or wrong is, especially if you find that the ethical stance of certain rule sets or contexts go against a lot of morals that we can find, um, then it's okay to, of course, express that depending on how you do, but that's a different topic. Either way, we still tend to have more of a sense that different people think different things are right and different people think different things are wrong. It doesn't become as emotionally personal as saying something or someone is bad or evil. Those are very, very strong words that we tend to reserve for really, really strong emotions. So when talking about morals and witchcraft, I want to make sure I use right or wrong as terminology. So that kind of leads me to the next thing I want to define, which is whether or not there are universal laws within witchcraft that would thus kind of be um, a commonly accepted reference point for um, not only <laughs> the truth, if we can call it that, but also to see if there's some sort of ethics that apply to witchcraft and all the people within the witchcraft community. Because the thing about a universal law is that most people accept it to be true. Even if that universal law is ethics at its core. For example, to um, really, really harm someone. <laughs> I'm not going to go into, you know, very emotionally triggering words here, but I think you understand what I'm implying. To really, really hurt someone or deprive them of some basic human rights, we can universally agree that that is something that is wrong. And so it's almost to the point where it becomes a universal law that these are some things you don't do. We all have them all over the world. We have like as, as humans, as living beings, we have certain things that we can universally, generally agree on. Can we find that in witchcraft? My opinion is kind of no here. Now, there are some things that you might encounter, especially if you're newer to the craft or newer as a practitioner and you're trying to find your way around what you can and can't do or, you know, within quotation marks, should or shouldn't do, you might find that some people are very quick to bring up certain, within quotation marks again, laws to you that you have to adhere to. A very common one that I see in a lot of communities, especially communities where there are people of many different paths interacting with each other, is the idea of a threefold law. I've oftentimes seen people say, you know, oh, you, you can't or you shouldn't do that because of the threefold law. Well, my opinion in this is that the threefold law is not a universal law. It's something that's based mainly on the Wicca way. And not all witches are Wicca. Not all witches, you know, follow that path and that's okay. All our paths are inevitably going to be individual and personal. And some might follow similar paths and have, you know, these unified words that you can refer to, such as I am Wicca. But not everyone has to follow the same path, nor does everyone even have to use the same label or way of re referencing themselves, nor do we absolutely not have to believe the same things. And so the threefold law 
is based on that specific path. So it's definitely not, in my opinion, a universal law. It's absolutely not something you have to follow just because people are telling you that that's the way things work. I personally do not follow the threefold law. Another common one that I see is referencing karma. Now, karma is a bit of a tricky, tricky one. <laughs> um, because karma comes from Eastern philosophies, right? And a lot of them see karma as something that actually kind of builds up and follows you into your next incarnation, your next lifetime, your re next reincarnation. And so karma in most Eastern philosophies is not an immediate reaction to whatever you do. It's something that accumulates. And both, you know, here I'm going to have to use these words, but you know, both good and bad karma. And this accumulation will then affect what your next life will look like, you know, how things will play out, what you get to experience, what you need to learn on soul level. So the idea that karma is pretty instant or within this lifetime is a highly westernized version of the original idea and concept of karma. So to kind of enforce that there's such a thing as karma, which you can experience within this lifetime or even like within the same day or the same week or month or year, is a westernized take on the more common approach in Eastern philosophies. Speaking as someone that lives in Sweden, so you know, that's where my East and West is based off of. Um, Eastern philosophies see as something that accumulates. And so, of course, in that we're taking a concept and we're kind of changing how it originally was portrayed or is originally believed or is currently believed in a majority of, say, Eastern philosophies, we kind of start off portraying something in a way that it wasn't originally meant to be portrayed. And so for me, that kind of automatically disqualifies it from being a universal law. Because we've already changed the original way it was used as a word, as a concept. And of course, that kind of to me implies that because we changed it, it isn't universal. So despite these common words, I'm going to mainly use these two. The, the idea of a threefold law, the idea of karma. Um, I personally have not found anything that I could qualify as a universal law of morality or ethics within the witchcraft community. And now we're going to start diving a little deeper then, because I've established, you know, the idea of morality, the idea of ethics, uh, why I use the words right or wrong, and I've established that I don't personally believe there's a universal law or universal truth that we all have to adhere to when it comes to morality within the witchcraft community. So then I want to talk a little bit about a thing that I see very often, and it's the split between the, the right, or now I'm going to have to use those heavy words, the good way to practice, and the wrong or the bad way to practice. You know, this used to be, and I still see referenced as black or white magic, I personally disagree with the terminology black or white because I think there are very heavy and ugly associations to those words and uh, what we associate with black or white magic. And so because of that, I don't use that terminology because I think there's a heavier implication of 
you know, white being good and black being bad that I absolutely do not agree with. So my, my personal recommendation is that if you, as a listener, tend to reference to black or white magic or even gray magic to express yourself as somewhere in between, maybe consider why we might be calling it black or white magic and what that might imply on a deeper level. And perhaps consider if there are different ways you can refer to these paths. Now I'm going to present uh, a very common way to reference these paths, which is left-hand path, which would be the malicious, within quotation marks, path, and the right-hand path, which would be the more, within quotation marks, beneficial path. Some examples of right-hand path magic is necromancy, curses, working with what people commonly see as malicious spirits, malicious deities, um, little darker stuff, in lack of better words. And of course, on the other hand, right-hand path would be, you know, the stuff that's intended to be beneficial. It could be healing or it could be your everyday magic, like maybe you want to manifest something positive for yourself. And so that would fall into that area. So the question is, do I use this terminology, right-hand and left-hand path? In a way, yes, and in a way, no. I'm aware of this terminology and I respect it when it's used by others, but personally, I do not really adhere to that mindset. And now we're really going to get into the more um, philosophical bit of this episode and where I share more of my own personal reflections and opinions about all this now that we've established some core concepts and, you know, brought up some terminology here and there and stuff, which is that I do not personally follow the idea of a right-hand and a left-hand path. I do not necessarily, as I've already established, believe that there's a universal law to what is right or wrong within witchcraft and what you choose to do within your path. And so I kind of, myself, should I use the terminology that I've already presented would be, you know, a middle path practitioner. That means I'm neither all right-hand path nor all left-hand path. My reasoning for my stance when I think about my witchcraft and, you know, I've been raised with this and I've practiced witchcraft and I've been pagan my entire life, it's hereditary for me, going way back and all that, is that I come from a context where I practice and believe mainly in the Norse folklore, the Norse, old Norse ways. I do not only believe in this because I'm an ominist, which means that I think there's truth and validity to all paths and all worldviews. And of course, I do, like I mentioned, practice non-Norse stuff. But my practice is very, very, very connected with the idea of nature. And so I don't believe that we can split nature up into two different sides. I mean... We tend to do that, and of course, sometimes we even gender it, which I'm going to talk about in a different episode, the idea of gendering within witchcraft. Um, But I do not personally necessarily see it as that clear one or the other side. Of course, dualistic thinking, as we can call it, doesn't always require you to just believe in two split or opposing halves, but oftentimes, I mean, if we look at the yin and yang, 
we see that there's a piece of one in the other. And that's kind of where I'm at. So like I said, nature is my guideline here, as well as the Old Norse views on things. And nature isn't just beneficial, within quotation marks, or malicious. Nature can both create and destroy, and many things in between. And, you know, we can read stories and understand and get an insight into some of the practices of old here when it comes to Völvur or, you know, the witches of old in the Norse context and understand that they actually also practiced things that were both considered beneficial and things we probably would consider malicious. So for me, the idea of malicious or beneficial becomes blurred because it's very much down to individual experience, right? Whether we think it is beneficial or malicious really comes down to perceived harm or perceived intention. But I think we all can kind of introspect and realize that even when we have the best intentions sometimes, we do harm. Or even when we might have not-so-great intentions, we might still find a way to still do something beneficial with that. And that's where it gets blurry to me. For example, say you want to hex someone, but you're hexing someone because you feel that you're acting out of self-preservation and you're acting to take a stance against an oppressor, maybe someone that has hurt you a lot. Why would I consider that, you know, quote-unquote bad and condemn that? There's literally no reason for me to do that. The most natural thing that we can find in nature is to defend yourself. And sure, we could argue that your emotions got the better of you and so you added harm to where harm already was done and thus escalated. But if the alternative is to turn the other cheek, that doesn't tend to be my worldview either. So then also, isn't the intention behind that hex self-empowerment and in an indirect way healing and reclaiming your power and, you know, righting a wrong? It really depends on whose side you're on, right? And if we want to flip it around because that one might be a little hard to relate to because we might innately feel that oh it's bad to act out of anger or it's bad to act out of these emotions we've been told are negative in society today let's flip it around say you are doing magic to get a job that you've applied to now depending on how you do this spell and how you send the intention out into the universe i ask you this how can you guarantee that the outcome is beneficial for everyone involved? What if your spell is that little energetic nudge that was needed for you to get that job? Beneficial, right? You got a job, you got an income, it, it's for the benefit of you. But what if I told you that you got that job over someone else who really, really, really was at the end of their road and needed that job? Suddenly you've caused harm to someone and you didn't even mean to. It's even... Like, if you were going to start talking about harm, perceived harm, perceived beneficial versus perceived malicious, let's use a bit of a more emotional example as well. I'm pretty sure most of us in this life have had someone tell us that they're going to pray for us, <laughs> whether we want to or not. Now, that statement can be very, very unwelcomed and can be very, very perceived to be malicious, right? Because I don't really want anyone to passive-aggressively tell me they're going to, you know, pray for me because they think that whatever I'm doing or the life I'm living is 
harmful and so they're going to send some beneficial vibes my way. Their intention in their mind is absolutely good, but, you know, for me, that's harmful. I don't, didn't ask for it, I don't want it. So we start seeing that the, the line between beneficial and malicious get a little blurred. And so how are we going to be able to navigate and place ourselves within the box of I practice malicious stuff or I practice beneficial stuff? Because no matter how aware we consider ourselves to be and how much effort we put into wording a spell, if we use, you know, spoken components in our magic, we are still inevitably human and we are still inevitably going to, more often than not, perform magic from our perspective because magic is a personal expression. So even if you do things for others or you try to consider all sides of a story, we are inevitably human. There are so many strands in this weave of life of all the different energies and all the different intentions and all the different directions which we might operate in that I think it's almost impossible for us to fully predict an outcome. Sometimes, as much as we try to be the good guy, we kind of end up doing harm. And so to try to impose this very, very restrictive thinking between beneficial and malicious magic is, to me, not a thing that I do. Another side of this story is also to look at the more clear-cut cases that we might consider to be malicious or, you know, left-hand path, right? So I, I mentioned hexes that can get a little blurry um, because you can claim that you're doing it in self-defense, you can do it out of good intentions. So we, we'll drop that one because we, we established that might be blurry. All right, well, let's pick something that's more straightforward, more clear-cut. Let's use the example of working with malicious spirits. We'll use the wording demons because Working with demons is one of the things that I think most of us can have some sort of reference point to. We understand what we mean when we say demons, even if we're not speaking from an Abrahamic perspective. Most people understand that the word demon, if we're not using, you know, daimon, the, the Greek or Roman terminology, tends to refer to a malicious spirit. All right. Well, I personally don't believe that we can always clearly see whether or not another conscious being is 100%, you know, beneficial or malicious in nature. To call a spirit 100% malicious is problematic to me because that brings me back to the old days where we used to villainize and demonize and still do, for example, different species. The wolf has historically been used as a sort of demonic creature of the forest, right? You don't go into the forest because the wolf might get you. And we've even constructed stories and concepts regarding the idea of a wolf as a malicious being. But why? Are wolves naturally malicious? A lot of people that love wolves, myself included, would obviously argue that they are absolutely not malicious. But we have to remember the context in which we decided that they were malicious, which was perhaps back in the day where we had no means of protecting ourselves and we lived in smaller communities. And so venturing into the forest might leave you at risk of being attacked by a wild animal. And in an effort to ensure that we would stay as safe as possible, we instilled a certain fear into our children to not go into the forest unattended or at night or what have you, because these perceived others that are negative will come and get us. Meanwhile, the wolf just wants to eat. 
I might not even want to eat a, a person. <laughs> but you know, a wolf is just a wolf. They're existing within their, well, context. Who's to say that quote-unquote demonic entities don't operate in the same way? Of course, there's a whole historical reason as well why I could go on a tangent and explain why a lot of entities or beings or even deities that we see nowadays as negative or malicious are only seen in that light because there was, frankly, smear campaigns done against the pagan ways. A lot of our associations for what's, to use those heavy words, good or bad, comes from an idea of what was instilled into us as a means to make sure that we follow a certain path. Why we were supposed to follow the certain path? Well, we're social animals and perhaps it benefited someone to ensure that we walk a certain path. So I don't personally use right or left-hand path as a reference. And I'm a little more blurred in how I consider intention and outcome and what then would be right or wrong to do. Does that mean that I don't have a moral compass as to what's right or wrong? Of course not. Of course I have a moral compass. In fact, I stand by my morality very strongly. However, my moral compass isn't based on the traditional, you know, right or wrong dualism that is heavily associated with those words, good or bad. I always try to understand that there's more sides to a story. And I always try to understand that no matter what I do with my magic, whether my intention to myself is well-intending, there might be a negative consequence of it. This brings me back to the idea of when I was talking about universal laws. I kind of said that I don't follow the threefold law, but I didn't say much about karma. The Western version of karma, that you get something happening to you pretty instantly after you do something, is closer to what I actually think, but I don't refer to it as karma. Because to me, karma is inevitably going to be the Eastern concept of something that accumulates over a lifetime to then affect your next lifetime. Whether I believe in that concept or not, I'm frankly undecided. What I do follow personally, however, when it comes to my own moral compass is that I never do anything that I'm not willing to take the consequences for. I'm a firm believer in cause and effect, or, you know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. That means that every time I sit down to cast a spell or to do magic or to try to influence the energies around me somehow or work with them or such, I always go inwards first to see if I inevitably can stand by what I'm about to do, no matter what the outcome may be. This, of course, can get pretty heavy because then I also have to compare how much I want an outcome with possible consequences of that outcome every time I sit down to send my intentions out. This might mean that sometimes I decide not to do anything magical at all. That doesn't mean that I'm paused or lulled into, you know, this passivity. Not at all. But it might give me an encouragement to try to do something the so-called mundane way or the non-magical way. Maybe I'll try more paths in the non-magical sphere to get a result before I sit down and send that energy and intention into the universe. And oftentimes, that's what I needed. But if I feel that I'm willing to bear the consequences or potential consequences of whatever I'm about to do magically, I proceed. That means that I might do things people would consider malicious sometimes, though rarely, because I often find that I can resolve most things within myself 
or in the mundane world. But I'm not opposed to performing a malicious intending spell. Similarly, I will think just as heavily about something that is on the surface level beneficial, because I don't know what the consequences may be and who it might affect. And I spend a lot of time trying to formulate my spells in a way so that it causes the least possible harm to the most possible beings. I personally also follow a very, very, very strict rule of consent. I think we can all agree that consent is everything. And if we can't all agree on that, I highly, highly recommend that you consider why you can't agree to that. I do not ever, ever do any sort of magic involving any non-consensual being. And I say being because I'm not limiting this to just humans. I work a lot with spirits and I work with deity. And I would never presume to command or force, or at least try to force, or otherwise enforce my personal will onto another conscious being. Because to me, spirits, and absolutely deity, are very conscious, living, though not in (laughs) our biological context perhaps, beings. Why would I enforce myself upon them? I wouldn't enforce myself onto a person or an animal, so why would I enforce myself onto a spirit? Now, there are paths out there that do enforce their will onto other beings, but that's not for me. That goes against my personal moral compass because I think it's important to have consent. And I feel that anything I would like to accomplish that involves a spirit can just as easily be done through cooperation and, and in my opinion, will be much stronger when it's based on cooperation rather than an enforced act upon another conscious being that then will be resentful and spiteful and have all kinds of emotions about everything that just happened. I mean, think about it yourself. If someone came and made you do something versus if someone asked you very kindly and built up a relationship with you first and then asked you for the favor, in which situation would you put more effort into? I think most of us can agree that we would put more effort into something if it's for someone we care about or have a relationship with rather than something that's forced upon us. Another moral guideline that I follow in my practice is the, that I do adhere to the concept closed practice. Now, closed practice is something that is established as not for certain people. With other words, um, it's a practice or a path that is reserved for a certain group of people, oftentimes of a certain background, nationality, ethnicity, what have you. I absolutely follow this and respect when someone tells me it's not for me, because I think it's common decency. As much as I think we're all the same in spirit, and that, you know, in spirituality there are no such things as boundaries connected to ethnicity or nationality, those are human concepts and biological concepts to me, as much as I feel that way, I still understand why there are closed practices. Because in human contexts, in human history, cultural appropriation is a real thing. And so I, as a human, of course, respect other humans and all the hurt, the pain, the awful, awful, awful things that have been done throughout history that has led to them saying, this is mine. Don't touch this because it's not yours to touch. Now, I want to point out that there is such a thing as cultural appreciation as well. The difference between appropriation and appreciation is probably another episode all on its own. But I want to make sure that I really point out here, if someone tells you it's not yours, you respect that, whether you feel that you're appreciating it or appropriating it. 
because rarely do people feel that they're appropriating something consciously, but they still might be appropriating it. That's kind of the thing. We often forget that most people do not go through life intentionally doing harm, but a lot of us still do harm, whether we're intentionally doing it or not. It's something we often remember for ourselves. Like, but I didn't mean it that way, but I, I have good intentions. We remember that and expect others to see our intentions and forgive us for our actions. But we often forget to apply that to others as well. And I think we would get a lot further in life if we just understood that we can both cause harm while meaning well, and also that other people can do the same. That doesn't excuse us or pardon us from an awareness that we can grow and cultivate. And also from realizing when we're doing something that might have harmed someone else or hurt someone else and apologizing and ceasing that behavior. So as much as I believe that culture and boundaries are a human concept, I also think it's common decency to respect the associated hurt, pain, and boundaries and closed practices overall. Anyway, to jump back to the idea of left hand and right hand path, right or wrong, I've already established that it's a very personal thing and that I personally do not necessarily follow the idea that anything is distinctly one or the other. Even with malicious spirits, as we might commonly see them as malicious, there might be more to them. We might be just as inclined to call a tiger malicious or to see a natural disaster that personally caused harm to us and hurt a lot of people as somehow malicious. But I think in reality, for me, the way I see the world, there's much more gray and much less black or white thinking. But that's just how I see things. And the beautiful thing about witchcraft is that it's highly, highly personal. So whatever you end up feeling is right for you is what's right for you. If you want to explore something you personally would classify as malicious, then do that. If you don't, then don't. The beautiful thing about witchcraft is it is inevitably an expression of the self. And it's very much about self-empowerment and just being you. So no matter what I've said in this episode, what I really want to point out is that whether you agree with my personal morality, which I've presented here or not, or at least kind of generalized, you are still free to do whatever you feel is right and to disagree with whatever you feel is wrong. That's your right as a conscious being. And don't let anyone ever, ever take that away from you. Don't give that power away. Allow yourself the right to think, to feel, and to make your own mind up. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode. Thank you so much for listening, for taking this time. If you like this, then please leave a like if you're listening to this on YouTube. It would really help me with, you know, the algorithm. Feel free to leave a comment, to subscribe again if you're on YouTube. That would really help me out. And let me know that this is something that people really want to continue listening to. And I wish you a beautiful day or night, wherever you are. Saga out.